And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Penny Whitbrot. Penny had a near-death experience where she encountered her deceased grandmother, and today we're going to learn about it. Penny, thank you so much for being my guest today, and welcome. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you and your audience. My audience loves to hear about near-death experiences. And if you don't mind, can we start on the day yours happened? Yes. So this was, I need to write down the year for some, I think when you've had as many medical issues as I've had, your brain just starts purging things. Um, But this was, I want to say 2014. Um, I was working as a nurse and I had gotten beat up by a patient while we were trying to do a procedure and it caused a neck injury, which then led to a surgery that I had to have. And so I had a surgery to fix my neck and I was still out of work at home recovering. And um, I suddenly started having like anaphylaxis type symptoms and I have a shellfish allergy, but I'd never, you know, had it kick in or anything. I always had EpiPens on hand just in case, cause you have to do that, but, but I'd never used them. And so I'm in the kitchen with my daughter drinking a smoothie and, and I'm thinking something, something is not right. And with anaphylaxis, you get um, medically, we call it an, an impending sense of doom. And we see it with blood clots and anaphylaxis, things that are quickly life-threatening. And it's just your body's warning thing. And, and I got that. And I'm not an anxious person by nature. So it really struck me. And, and so then I noticed I was having trouble swallowing and I was having to use like a napkin to dry saliva because I couldn't swallow it um, because there was difficulty there. And I was starting to have a wheeze that you could hear without a stethoscope. And I'm like, okay, this is an allergic reaction to something. And and it was moving quickly. So I got the EpiPen out. I, I did, they come in two packs. I took the first one and then my son took me up to the hospital and my husband and I weren't married at the time. So I went to this small town hospital and um, since I had worked there, I knew the nurse that was working the ER and she did not have the greatest reputation for her skill set. And uh, I walk in and I'm looking up, you know, there's certain clinical signs you look for in a patient to know you can spot them and know there's trouble. And so I'm looking up and I'm, there's this kind of whistling noise when I'm breathing, which is called strider. It's caused by the airway swelling and, and, and I can barely whisper. And so she's like, well, what do you need? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm having some sort of allergic reaction. I took my EpiPen and she says, well, why did you come here if you took your EpiPen? And I'm like, oh, wow, you don't even know that that's the, the thing. That's what you do. And so she says, well, we don't have any rooms right now. We've got a room that's clean, but we don't have a bed in it. So we're just going to put you in this wheelchair out here. And as soon as we get a bed, we'll put you in there. So uh, the when you go into the ER, the there's like a hallway. And then next to that hallway is the nurse's station. And so I'm down. She parks me at the end of this hallway where I can't be seen, which was weird. And uh and, and I'm just sitting there and I'm now getting anxious because I'm feeling worse and worse and, and I'm waiting and waiting and we're not getting into this room. And I'm like, I don't think I can, I don't think I can get up and go tell somebody that this is getting worse. And so I got my second EpiPen out. I'm in the emergency room. I give myself my second EpiPen. And within a couple of minutes, this woman comes around the corner. And I think she was a physician's assistant and to, to investigate what this noise is, the strider noise that I'm making with my throat. And um, she's like, Oh my goodness. So she wheels me into this room. They get me on the bed and my veins have gone flat because I'm anaphylaxing and they can't get anything in, which is just a very scary place to be. So they move me over to trauma, the trauma bay across the way. And, um, 
you know, they get like a really sketchy IV in and they start giving me Benadryl and steroids, all these different things, more epinephrine. And my husband gets there and he walks into the room and I, it was just so vivid. I'm sitting straight up in the bed because I can't breathe any other way. I'm looking straight up and he says, he looks at the doctor and he says, you need to intubate her. She's going to stop breathing. And the doctor's like, no, no, we've got plenty of time. He walks out. It's not two minutes later that I collapse and stop breathing. So when I did that, I pop out of my body and I'm watching from overhead and I, I hear the code call and, and see everybody rush in and my husband kind of gets pushed out of the way. And, and, uh, I, and I'm watching the, the me in the bed and I don't realize it's me. I'm very depersonalized. And so I'm kind of assessing her. I'm like, oh yeah, that's not a good sign. You know, she's, she's complete respiratory arrest. They better hurry because she's not looking good. And then that was it. I was gone from there. And so when I, when I'm aware again, I'm still not in my body and I'm in my sister's car and she's driving from Wisconsin to come to Kentucky to be with me. So I'm thinking at this point, I probably was already at the bigger hospital in an induced coma because I think that's when she left. So I'm in the backseat of her car. It's pouring rain. It's dark and things just don't seem right. I'm like, I can't feel the seat touching me. I don't feel as dense as I normally feel something's weird. And so I wanted to say something to her, but I'm like, no, maybe I better not. Cause like I'm freaked out and she's driving in the rain. I don't want to scare her. And uh, so she, she's driving, she pulls over at this gas station, like under the canopy and she goes, she's rifling through her purse. And so I lean forward and her clothes are all wrinkled and mismatched. And I'm like, what on, why is she out in this weather at this time? You know, looking like she just pulled clothes out of the laundry and took off if something wrong with the kids or her husband, you know, I was worried. And so she pulls out her phone and she types in, hang on, kiddo, I'm coming. And that's it. Then I'm gone from there. So when I come back to awareness, I'm in this void, this is very dark place, like so dark that that you can't see anything and I can't move. And so I don't know if I'm like in a space the size of a closet or a Walmart. I don't, there's no way to know. And, and I'm really claustrophobic. So this not being able to move was causing me to be very anxious. And, um, and I start working up and I, I get panicky and then I would go back into the deep sleep and this would just happen over and over and over again. And I was trying to figure out where I was, you know, and time there is very different than time here. Time here is just very linear, chronological there everything happens at once somehow without it being chaotic. I, I can't even explain how it works, but I always tell people if I had to equivocate, you know, time there versus here, that time in the void felt like what 10 years feels like here. Mm. And I mean, like literally what it feels like, not, you know, I'm not being figurative. It really felt like that. And so I'm, I'm starting to puzzle, you know, I'm thinking, maybe I never lived that life. Maybe, mm. I, maybe I made it up. So I'd have something to think about here. Um, you know, perhaps this has always been my existence, or maybe I had that existence and I'm lost and nobody knows where I am or, or how to get to me. And, and I'm just going to be here forever. And if you can imagine, that would just be terrifying that you, and it felt, um, it felt like, the ultimate of being alone. Like you're never really alone here. There's always somebody nearby. This was like alone and I couldn't get to somebody if I wanted to. And it was just desperate that the whole situation felt very desperate. 
And so, I, you know, I was trying to think, had I, had I done something? Had I made some mistake? Had, had I been sentenced to this? You, you know, I just couldn't sort it out. So I, I go back into the deep sleep. And at one point I wake up and it occurs to me, instead of trying to, you know, like walk or move my whole body, <clears throat> maybe I could just lean a little bit. And so I lean forward. And as I lean forward, there's forward motion. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Holy cow, I can move. And, and so for some reason, I decided left would be the way to go. And, and so I lean forward and I'm going left. I can't see anything. I mean, I could have flown into a tower, who knows? Um, so it's really scary to fly with your eyes closed, basically. And I can see a light way up ahead. And I'm like, oh, oh, yes, go to that. So I go to that. And there's this boundary. And it it looked like they used to make these um, glass squares and they would use them in bathrooms because the glass is really thick and it distorts the thing on the other side. That's kind of what it looked like and what it was like to look through it. And so I'm peering, I'm looking through this thing and I know that's the lights coming from the other side of it. And I, you know, I, I put my hands on it. I can't push through. I, I get closer and closer and look. And as I stare, the scene on the other side becomes clear and it's me in the ICU on a ventilator. And my daughter's there. She's standing in front of the ventilator, but behind me to my right. And I can feel her anxiety like it's my own. And, and I always tell people she's a Scorpio, so she's very private. And it was the first time I'd ever been in her head. And it was interesting, you know, because I just were, were very different people. And um, she had this red flannel shirt on. And I remember thinking it was awfully hot for that, but that's so her. And I could see the fibers on it. And like I could experience how soft they were without being able to touch them. And, uh, and so she's very worried. I'm looking rough and, uh, but I'm thrilled to see that I'm alive and I'm like, okay, I need to figure out how to get there. And probably if I could get there, then this will all stop and I'll wake up from this horrible dream. And so Laura had, my daughter, Laura has this thought, which, um, evokes this kind of, uh, you know, gut level fear sensation. And I feel it. And immediately, like without thinking, I put my arms out to grab her, to pull her to me and my hands hit the wall. And I just lost it. I just, I just lost it. I was just so upset and angry and hopeless and all these things. And I'm like, why can't I get through there? What is going on? And, um, it, so, you know, when I start beating on the wall and I'm yelling and carrying on and I get sucked back into the dark. So the next day I do the same thing and I get to the place and this time that that border looks more like um, like a bubble when the wind hits it, like it's kind of breathing. And I thought, oh, this is this is a new development. And so I stick my hand through and it goes through. And I'm like, oh, this is all right. You know, so I go all the way through and now I'm above me like I was in the ER um, in the ICU. And I look at all of like the drips that I'm on and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm in an induced coma. I look at my blood pressure. My wrists are tied to the bed. I find that very upsetting. Um, and I'm intubated of course. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, well now what, like, do I, like, if I lay down on top of me, will I get sucked back in like a sponge or what, how does this work? I don't know how you get back in. And, and, nothing seemed like it made sense. And so I thought maybe I need to wake her up. And then like, once she's conscious, I'll be back in. And so I'm trying to like focus my energy on her and wake up and she's just 
like defiantly laying there ignoring me. And I'm like, come on, you know, just, just open your eyes and, and I can't make it happen. And I thought, okay, okay, too big, you know, maybe, maybe smaller scale. And so I look at her finger and, and I'm like, just move your finger. Just, just your little pinky finger, just a little bit, just move it. And I couldn't make anything happen. And so I'm getting really frustrated. I get sucked back just to the other side of the membrane that separates those two places. And I'm crying and, and I'm finally like, this has to mean something. There's got to be something I'm supposed to figure out. What, what is it? You know, what, what is this place? How did I get here? And it just pops into my head. You made this. Hmm. And I'm like, what? And it, it just immediately, like once I had that realization, it all made sense. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So throughout my life, I, you know, I had just had a lot of tragedy and, um, you know, I had been married to the kid's dad and, um, you know, he had an affair and then he left and, and, you know, so there I'm left with three kids. I didn't have my nursing degree. So I had to put myself through school, work full time, the whole thing it was just really hard. And, uh, and, and I was pretty able to kind of heal from the betrayal between the adults. But the fact that, you know, he would not keep contact with the kids or he would talk to the kids and say he was going to send something. And then I'd watch my youngest walk out to the mailbox and back every day and it not be there. And it just broke me. And, uh, you know, different things had happened that were upsetting or traumatic, kind of proving to me that it, the world just wasn't safe. And so it was like I had taken every hurt like a brick and I had stacked it in front of me and high and all the way around to protect me. And, and I didn't have like any real interpersonal relationships. I was friendly with people, but, but outside of work, I didn't engage. I just went to work and went home and went to work and went home. And it, it had gotten so bad. I developed such a social anxiety that um, I would feel panicky just answering the phone. And uh, I, I realized that I had, what I had done in life as a means of protection, though it protected me, it also jailed me. And that there is, you're building things spiritually by what you do here. And that was what I had built, this place where I was completely alone and, and couldn't figure out how to get out of it. And, you know, things were very confusing and felt unsafe. And, and that was it. So when I made that realization, there was this cracking sound. And I always tell people, I grew up in Michigan. So um, you know, the lakes freeze over. We lived right by Lake Erie. And it was so neat to go out during the spring thaw, because if you if you got lucky, you would hear the ice start to crack from the shallow end, and it would travel out to the deeper end of the lake. And it makes this really haunting noise. That was the noise I heard much louder. And as that noise was happening, there was like a crack, like in an egg, like a crack in the void, and light started pouring in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. You don't like, I figured out the million dollar question or something. This is it. I'm going to get out. And uh, this spirit comes and she's huge. She's like huge spiritually, um, which translates to her being huge physically. And I, I don't immediately recognize her. And she, she comes, you know, she comes to where I'm at and she pulls me into her arms without touching me. And I'm like, wow, that's a trick. Um, and and so I'm crying, like ugly crying, because, you know, here, there's somebody here. This is awesome. You know, I found people and, and she's very familiar to me. And I'm, I, I can't think of who she is for some reason. So she's holding me. She's got one arm around me and her energy is like going around us like a tornado. And uh, every time 
so there are these shards of the void and every time these shards are flying around and when one would hit her energy it would be cast off and it was gone forever and and so she's dispelling this darkness just with her spirit and so i start to cry and and you know i'm just overcome and she says mentally to me she says calm yourself dear one and i always tell people it was kind of like you know if you've ever had surgery or had to be sedated for something when they push it in, you can feel it wash through you. Like you couldn't fight it if you tried. That's what it was like. And so I immediately am calm. And, uh, and so I start looking at her and, and I look up at her face. And she's got these brilliant, brilliant green eyes. And I look up at her hair and it's this orange red like flames. And it's actually moving like flames. And I immediately know who she is. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's my grandmother. And so I look at her and I'm just shocked. I said, oh my God, I thought you died. And she smiles, you know, she's like, no, there's no death. You know, you're either alive on, on earth or you're alive here. And she said, you though, you're both. You've, you've got like a little cord that's still connecting you to your body. But if you decide to stay, that'll be broken and, and you'll be fully here. And I'm like, oh, all right, that's a, that's a cool plan. And she's like, you know this. And I'm like, no. And, and she says, yes, yes, you know this, you learn this. And I'm like, I don't think so. And she says, yes, when you were in elementary school, energy isn't created or destroyed. It just changes forms. That's God's law borrowed by man. And I was like, oh, wow, she is so smart. And it, it was just such a thrill to see her because she died when I was nine. And um, that woman was a force. She uh, she worked for a steel stamping plant, I think, in Dearborn, Michigan, and it was mostly run by women. And a friend of hers got her arm caught in the stamping machine and they didn't have a union or anything. So when that destroyed her arm, they just fired her. And it incensed my grandmother. And my grandmother was just this very, you know, people either loved her or hated her, um, but most people loved her. And she was the life of the party and, you know, just very interesting woman. And so she decided she was going to start a union. And, uh, my dad's like, I don't think that's going to be a good idea. And, you know, she's going to do her thing because she's Levita Patriots. And so she starts working to start a union. And one night I, I was a little girl. I was like four, maybe at the time I would sit out on the porch and wait for her to come home because she lived in the apartment over our house and she doesn't come home. She doesn't come home. And I keep going into my mom and I'm like, mom, where is she? It's getting dark, you know? And she's like, I'm sure it's fine. Well, then my mom gets worried and we're both out there. And eventually like dusk, this black car pulls up the, the back doors open and she's shoved out into the street and she comes to the house and, you know, we all go inside and, and she said, they picked me up and they told me if I didn't stop this, they took her to the Detroit river and they told her if she didn't stop trying to start this union, that that is where she was going to end up. And so my grandmother started the union because <laughs> that's who she was. She just had a, um, an overdeveloped sense of justice. That's what my husband says I got from her. So there I am with her and, and, and she's bigger than she was in life, you know, as big as I had always saw her in my own mind, which was really cool. And uh, just in perfect health. And, you know, her death was very sudden, just over like a month and a half from an undiagnosed cancer. So I'm with her and, you know, she's kind of just comforting me and everything. And, and I get, I get settled and, and I realize that she's gone, that I'm now just floating in light and I don't know where she's at, but I'm okay. And, uh, all of a sudden there's this shaking and it's like earthquake kind of shaking. And I had this awareness that everything that had ever been or would ever be was shaking at the presence of what was coming. 
And I thought, oh, no, it's God. You know, so immediately, because I knew my grandmother could read my thoughts, I'm trying to conjure up good things I've done. So if he reads my thoughts, that's what he's going to say. <laughs> Such a human reaction, you know. And uh, this light comes, and then it's right there. And I don't know how you determine how close light is to you, but it was right there. And uh, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And he says, I am. And it meant something to me. I had read it in the Bible, I don't know how many times. And I'd been a believer. I wasn't sure there was an afterlife. I was hoping that if I believed in it, it would be. But, you know, you can't be sure till you see it. And um, when he said that, I am, it was just for me this affirmation that there is God um, and that I'm not God and that you're not God, um, that there is this all-knowing, all-powerful creator. And... I got this sense that we were going to go through some things in my life. And I'm like, oh, it's, I always tell people, it's like, um, if you've been divorced and remarried, so like you married in your twenties when all of your body parts were at their best, um, being in front of God is like, you know, you meet this new guy, you're going to get married and it's the first time he's going to see you naked, you know, and you've had three kids. <laughs> It's not all the way it should be anymore. And, you know, but you've been able to disguise it pretty well and make it look like it is in clothing. And then there's that moment where you, you know, you reveal all your flaws. And that's what it felt like. It felt like being naked in front of somebody for the first time, but all the way to my core. And I had to make this decision. Was I going to open myself up to that experience or not? And my history would tell me, no, don't do it. But I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And so the first thing he does is he pulls up this image of um, something good I had done. And it wasn't like nearly the great stuff I've done, which I was a little disappointed. I'm like, oh, man, this you could have. I, I was hoping I'd do really well with that one big thing. And um, he pulls up this memory that I have of being in the Save-A-Lot grocery store. And this woman is in line in front of me and she's short just a little bit. And she's trying to figure out what to put back. And I don't know if you've, you know, single moms will all get this. Single dads will get it. You know, that situation where, you know, there's somebody in line behind you and it's a very small amount of money and you don't have it and you have to put something back. It's humiliating. And I remember just seeing that blush, you know, wash over her and, and you know, she's all apologetic and digging through her purse. And so I pull out the money and I hand it to her and, you know, she's, I could tell she's humiliated and, and she's like, thank you. And I said, it's not a big deal. I've been there. It's okay. You know, take the money. And so she took the money and, and she paid for her things. And I'm like, that, that's the, <laughs> that's the thing you key in on. And he says, look at this. And he shows the scene forward years and she's working at this food pantry. And this woman comes in, who's a single mom with kids who doesn't have enough food and she's embarrassed and humiliated. And this woman helps her. And he said, do you see how that small act of kindness that you thought was inconsequential impacted the world you know and I was like wow I didn't realize just it gets me every time I didn't realize that these small kindnesses were epic I mean there's no there's no other way to say that I did not realize that so you know that was pretty interesting well then he brings up you know something that I could grow from you know that I would have said was bad or whatever and uh there was this woman that I worked with when I was a nurse and, and she was like the last person I would want taking care of my family. She wasn't nice. She, you know, was just very flippant with patients and I just did not like her. And I'm not a person who gossips. 
Like if people are gossiping, I'll just turn around and walk off. So people sometimes think I'm weird, but I just always assume if you're talking trash, you're probably talking trash about me too. And, and I just think it's very destructive in a work environment. So I always avoided it. That didn't keep me from harboring all kinds of negative thoughts about her though. And so he shows me, you know, cause I, it was all justified. Like I wasn't maligning her. I was just hating on the things that she did that I didn't feel like were right. Well, he, he flashes me over her life and I see her life very quickly in full detail. And I see what this woman has gone through. And I see, you know, her father physically abusing her in full detail for the years that it happened over her life. And I'm then brought to this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, she's doing amazing. You know, she, this man that was supposed to be her dad broke her as a child and here she's got through college, you know, she's working, she's trying to help people, but she's still not broken some of that, that hurt away. And that's why she's acting this way. And he said, I want you to see this, not to condemn you, but to show you that, that your thoughts have power and your words have power and your actions have even more power, but it all starts with thoughts. And he said, when you think those thoughts and you get stuck in those, and it's, it's just this kind of fixation that you have on this person. When you're thinking those thoughts, they have energy to them, and it, it makes it harder for that person to break out of those behaviors because you're casting it right back onto them. And, you know, and I guess that kind of makes sense because in the, in the Bible, there's this verse about um, praying for your enemies because it's like heaping coals on their head, and I'm like, well, that doesn't seem right. But the whole premise is that you know, it doesn't do any good for you to, to think all these negative thoughts because then you get fixated and you feel negative all the time. And, and, you know, when I realized that I'm like, Oh goodness, it wasn't enough to not gossip. I have to now catch those thoughts early and stop because ultimately what affects you affects me, whether you or I know it or not, you know? So I, I see in this time that we're living in this great divide and I see um, powerful people intentionally causing unwarranted division over things that don't make sense to be divided over. And, you know, we were talking earlier and I'm like, it's like our tower of Babel moment. You know, we've got these groups that think they're going to build a ladder to the sky or whatever. And, uh, and they're, they're fighting this other group to do it. And, and none of it makes sense anymore. I'm like, none of it makes sense. Why? I don't understand why group A hates group B. And I, I think if, you know, they weren't online and they were actually at a store, the one would give the other the money for the groceries, you know, because people are like that. And, and so I've, I've really been put off by this um, stoking of division. You know, it's one thing if people don't get along because they don't get along, but to push it along is really a very bad thing for everyone. And, uh, so I, I just, I learned that, that you have to control your thoughts and, you know, I've been very careful as a nurse, like when I go out to help people, it doesn't matter what their sway is ideologically, um, we're connected and what's hurting them is going to hurt me. And I want to heal. And I always tell people, they're like, thank you so much. And I, I always tell them it's okay. Um, loving you heals me. It's, it's purely selfish, you know? And, uh, and so there I'm with God, we're going through these situations. And I, I know that there's going to be this opportunity to, to go deeper. And I'm trying to decide whether I want to do this with him or not, you know, and because uh, I got to, I have to open completely up. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. 
Well, all of a sudden, this light that was separate from me comes in through my toes and it comes up through my legs. And um, it had this resonance in the key of G. I don't know why, um, but I remember hearing it later at church, just that key. And I'm like, that's the sound God makes. And I went up to the lady playing piano and I'm like, we play just G for me. And I touched it and I was right back there with him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, because he's got a resonance and a smell and all these different things. And so it's that energy's coming up and it gets up into my middle. And it feels like, um, like when I was a little girl, I would wear dresses and I would spin in a circle so the skirt would flare out. That's what it felt like. Like this, his love had kind of flared out on my insides as he got into my torso and he was healing all of these hurts and, and things that were, um, I can't think of that word. What is that called where uh, you have these negative feelings in your gut? There's a word for it. I mean, I just think of like butterflies in your stomach. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a name for it. It'll come to me. So, you know, so he's, he's healing all those things. So when you have like a bad thing happen to you or something that's traumatizing or upsetting, you do internalize it. It does make a mark on the inside of you. And, and that can be the root of a lot of problems and people don't realize it because you've, you've not had, you know, you've not gone through and healed that thing. And so he's healing all these things and it comes up into my heart and I can, I can feel it moving around in there. And, um, and then it comes up into my neck and I can feel that it's going to be in my mouth. And as soon as it gets in my mouth, I start singing and it's like, like it sounded good, which is so unusual for me. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. And, uh, and then it, it goes up and I can feel it getting behind my eyes. And for some reason, like one, once it was in my head, I didn't want to let it out. And so I closed my eyes to keep it from getting out and it shoots through my eyelashes. And so this light's coming out of my eyelashes. It hits the light that has got on the outside of me and it shoots back in and it goes up and it goes through my brain. And I just had this like confirmed peaceful knowing. And I, I can't tell you what I knew but it was like this part of my intellect that I had never experienced before was active. And so like every, I I know that everything that was mysterious was revealed, but I can't remember it now. And uh, so, so that was pretty interesting. So we get, so we've gone through that. Now we're going to go through my DNA. We're going to travel together down these DNA strands and he he's with me. It's almost like he's got my, his arm around me and kind of like we're flying through these spirals and we're going so fast. And we get to this spot where we just stop, like, you know, like hitting a brick wall. And he says, do you see me? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're right here with me. Of course I see you. And he's like, no, no, do you see me? And he's pointing to this spot in my DNA, you know, in my, my genetic code. He said, that's me. That's me. I'm in you. I built you. I'm in you. And he's like, people can deny it. Um, you can deny your dad's your dad, but you can't change this. This is the truth. I'm in you, whether you believe in me or, uh, you know, you want a relationship with me or not, I'm there. You can't get away from me. I'm always there. I built you. And so I got really bitter and all of those hurts that I had watched my kids go through suddenly were very real to me at that moment. And I said, you know, if you're so great and there's all this love and you're in me and, you know, and you're conspiring for me, what about this stuff? Why didn't you fix this? These were little kids. You know, how could you not intervene on their behalf? What about all the little kids that die? You know, I mean, just all these 
tragedies. What, what are you doing up here? And um, he says, oh, dear one, you've completely misunderstood me. And so he shows me this scene. So when I actually got sick, when all this happened, my grandson was just two. Um, but we flash forward to when he's five and I'm sitting in bleachers next to my son. And I can see my grandson Cole running up and down the soccer field. And he's so alive. And the, you know, the way the light's hitting his hair, it was just very, all of it was very tangible and real feeling. And my son looks at me and he says, mom, I never can get through this. He says, mom, I'm going to be the dad to him that I deserved. And I was like, oh, you're breaking the cycle. And you chose our generation to do it with. You're breaking that cycle that was so prevalent in my husband's family of brokenness. You're fixing that with my kids. You know, and if we had to go through hardship, but it's fixed for every child that comes forward, you know, after that. Okay. You know, it was painful, but at least I understand it now. And um, so we're there and. And the funny thing is, you know, when I got back, when Cole was five, he actually did play soccer. I actually did sit on that bench next to my son, and he actually looked at me and said that. And it very much confirmed to me that, you know, that I hadn't amplified that experience at all, that it was exactly as I'd remembered it. But we're there, and, and I have there, we come to this point, and I just know I have to decide if I'm going to stay or go. And I'm like, okay, deal. I'm staying, you know? <laughs> and I immediately knew it wasn't right. It wasn't the right decision. And I knew God knew it wasn't right. And and it, it occurred to me that I had known, you know, I, I played part in this decision to, to be this person. And there was magic I was supposed to do while I was here, and I had hidden from it the entire time. And I hadn't, I hadn't embraced that gift, you know, and, and all the tragedy, all the good and bad that comes with it, I hadn't done it. I'd, I'd avoided it all. I hadn't really lived. And I, and I, I was like, can I go back? You know, can I do better? Can I try? You know, can I, can I let the love of God spill out of me and onto everybody else? Could I at least do that? And I thought, yeah, I feel like I owe him that. And so as soon as I thought that, I started pulling away from him and I became frantic. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I said, please let me remember this because I feel like if I go back and I can't remember it, I won't have any hope. And so I wake up, I'm in the hospital. There's a nurse sitting there. I look at, I'm off the vent. I look at her and I'm like, I was with God. And she's like, oh, that's nice, dear. You know, and she pats my hand and I'm like, no, I mean, like just now I was with God. And she's like, well, let me go get your family. They order a psych consult. I'm in a faith-based hospital. (laughs) So my family comes in and they, they stay for a while and they talk and the nurse eventually runs them off because I'm getting tired and she leaves and she turns the light off in the room and um, God comes back. And it was funny because he, it scared me. It startled me because I didn't know he could appear there. And, uh, and so I'd let out this little, you know, yell because it scared me. And he laughed and I laughed and I'm like, Oh, I thought you were gone. He's like, yeah, I'm, I can't be gone. <laughs> so um, he had given me this message and I, I should have pulled it up, but anyway, he'd given me this message and he's like, I want you to share this. And, uh, and I didn't, I held on to it. I didn't tell anybody about it for a really long time. Because to me, it felt like, um, you know, this creator that loved me so much had written me this love letter, and I wanted it just for me. And so I kept it in my heart, you know, and I would pull it up and I would read it. And um, so I keep getting sick. So that was the first time that that whole respiratory failure happened. Well, over two and a half years, it would happen 17 times more. 
we could not get to the bottom of what was going on. And so finally we figure out it's a mast cell disorder, maybe triggered by the cadaver bone or glue they used to put my neck back together. We don't know. And people who get that type of idiopathic anaphylaxis, the doctor told me it either kind of slows down and resolves in two or three years or they die. And at two and a half years, I had the 18th attack and I'm in the hospital. I'm in a coma. I pop out. I go up on the other side with God and I have some words with him. And I'm like, look, I'm done. I'm done. I can't keep doing this. I'm in the hospital more than I'm out. It is torture for my family. Just heal me or take me. I can't do it. And he's shocked. You know, he's like, it's not me. It's you. I'm like, what what do you mean? It's me. I'm like, you're God. This is clearly not me. And he's like, Penny, I keep putting people in your path to love and situations in your path that you can make better. And you keep saying no. You have to start saying yes. You said you were going to go back and live, but you keep saying no, you're not living. This is why, you know, this is this is why I'm here with you in this situation. I kind of had to meet you where you were in illness because there was no other way for me to speak to you. You know, had you been doing something you loved, I could have spoken to you through that. Or had you had a relationship with somebody that you really loved, I could have spoken through, you know, to you through that. But this seems like the only way I can talk to you say yes. And I'm like, okay, that sounds ridiculous, but you know, you're God, so I'll take your word for it. So I wake back up and I have a friend named um, Brian who runs a support group for people who've lost children. And he had asked me countless times to come up to Cincinnati and speak at their group. And I always made up some excuse, true or not, so that I wouldn't have to do it because it was so, I mean, I have a hard time going out to coffee. I'm going to speak in front of a group, no way. And he called when I got out of the hospital and he's like, hey, I'm just checking on you, you know, how are you doing? And, and I knew it was coming and I'm feeling anxious. And, and he says, I just wanted to ask if you'd, and I just said, yes, he was my first. Yes. And, and I'm like, you just need to hang up because if we talk any longer, I'm going to back out. So just, <laughs> so I go up and, and that was my, my first talk at the Cincinnati IMS and where I met Howard storm. And I mean, it wasn't at the meeting that was separate, but, um, and I have said yes to every interview so far, and I have never had another hospitalization for that cause. And so it definitely, it, it was this, you know, you've got to stop worrying about your own safety um, all the time. I mean, it had become an obsession to where I shut everything out. And you, you've got to experience life, you know, the good and the bad. And, and I learned that, like, we're so fixated on anything that, that is painful or, or appears negative to us, that's bad. And anything that feels good is good. And that is not the truth. The truth is that anything, no matter how awful it feels, that brings growth is good. And anything that causes stagnation or for you to shut down or put a divide is bad, even if it feels good. You know, if you're sitting in your recliner every day, not engaging, though it's very comfortable and nice and a lovely habit, um, you know, personally, it, it's bad. And, and so I started seeing everything differently. You know, I started looking at situations and I'm like, okay, this is a troubling situation, but these things come because there's something you're supposed to learn. What can I learn from this? What am I supposed to take from it? What are the ways I can solve it? Um, how can I be my best God self, you know, God in me assisting to overcome this situation? And it really takes a lot of the stress out of life, especially when you're dealing with difficult people. You're like, okay, this person is just 
very difficult, but I don't have to get sucked into all the negative emotions that come along with that. I can just let them have that. You're just a difficult person and I'm still going to be joyful and it's going to be a very weird, uneven interaction. But as far as it goes with me, that's my choice. And um, so anyway, I kind of, it really set me on this journey to discover things. And, you know, I started reading things um, in addition to the Bible and I wasn't a huge Bible reader before, but, but I mean, I knew the foundation of it and, and I, so I, I was reading, I was studying all religions and I was like, you know, what do these things have in common? And my husband just was terrified and his parents were both Methodist ministers. And so he had contacted Howard Storm because he thought I'd gone off the rails and he was hoping Howard could get me on track. And I, I found it very offensive and, and we weren't yet married. And, and I said to him, I said, you know, I read something the other day and it said that um, of people who have a near death experience who are a, in a couple relationship, 70% of those end up in divorce. I said, your parents were both pastors. I had an interaction with God. Is that going to be the thing that splits us up? Or, or can we work through this? And, and he agreed to work through it. And it is not easy for somebody who's not been through that experience to understand what the person who has been. And, and it's all the people you would think you could talk to about it. You can't like nobody from church wanted to hear about it. Um, you know, they, that, that whole dark void thing scared them. And I always tell people a near death experience is not a death experience. When you have a near death experience, God knows you're going back. And so that doesn't mean that, you know, I wasn't a believer. So I was cast into this dark place. I was dealing with what I was doing on earth. You know, I was creating this alone, dark place. And, you know, I cherish that time in the darkness as much as the light, because I I fully experienced the spiritual weight of the isolating decisions I was making. And it was very important to my life. And, you know, so when he knows you're coming back, he, he gives you insights so that you can go back and do it better. That's totally different than, you know, your body totally being cast away because it's not of use anymore and you leaving permanently. And so I always try to make that clarification because people are like, well, you were in a dark place, then you were with Satan and the light was Satan and, I'm like, yeah, no, that's completely wrong. But um, so, yeah, so that's, those are kind of the near-death experiences. And I've traveled around talking about it and in front of crowds and leaving the state to do it. It's very brave. Um, it always feels like I've really accomplished something. I'm like, oh, I talked to a stranger today. Well, Penny, thank you for sharing with us your story. It was amazing. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. So I'm going to take you back and um, kind of work you back through just some things that I'm curious of. Okay. I first want to start with you would experience something and then you would go into like a deep sleep. Can you put a, a time on how long do you think you would go to sleep for? It was a long time. Um, and it was a sleep like where you lost complete awareness. Even when you sleep here, there's a, there's a part of your brain that's still aware. That's why you wake up when you smell smoke or whatever. It was it was like being extinguished for that period of time and not existing. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably most of the time that I spent there was in that deep sleep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there were, it was just intermittently dotted with those times where I would wake up and try to sort things out. Why do you think your consciousness was doing that? Well, you know, that's interesting. So, you know, I, I don't generally listen to other people's near death experiences because um, I'm always worried. They'll, they'll say something and it'll trigger something that I've forgotten from it. And I don't want to accidentally incorporate that 
you know, and then I feel like I would never know if I really remembered it or if it was just, so I'm very careful. I just don't listen to them because I want to make sure that none of it accidentally pollutes my story. And, um, oh, I forgot what your question was. What I asked is, why do you think that you went into this deep sleep? I, to me, like I welcomed it, you know, because I would be so panicked and upset. And it was like this reprieve from having to deal with the dark place. It was kind of like my wall within a wall. I could go back to that deep sleep and, and avoid all the negative emotions and all the fear and all the trying to sort everything out. So I don't know if that was something I initiated. And I've had a lot of people, like I, I read a lot of the um, just kind of uh, thoughts on what's really going on with people that are having a near-death experience, you know. So people say, oh, well, it's the drugs. You know, you're in an induced coma. You're that that's what it is. And, and I can kind of speak to that as a nurse and somebody who's been in a coma. Um, the thing is, when people relate delusions or hallucinations that they've had um, because uh, narcotics or whatever have, have triggered that, uh, the, none of it makes sense. It's all very jumbled and, and it's, it's confusing and the memory is here or there. This was very um, organized and clear and, and that's not generally what you see with hallucinations. So that didn't make sense. And then people are like, well, it's the result of a dying brain. You know, there are these chemicals that, you know, cause you to see bright lights and things like that. And, you know, because you've lost oxygen. Well, I was fine. I was on a ventilator. My, I was perfectly oxygenated the whole time. So that doesn't explain it either. And then I have these things that can be verified, like my sister typing that on Facebook, you know, while I'm in a coma or... I saw her in the waiting room with my son and they were sitting, there's the bathroom here. Then there's this row of chairs. There was two chairs that were from the corner. That chair was empty. The next chair was empty. Then sat my son. My sister's purse was in between them. She's on the other side and she pulls a blue Kleenex out of her purse. And I remember wondering, wow, where do you get blue Kleenex? Cause that's the most pressing issue. But, you know, they were talking about, you know, how I needed to have an advanced directive and, you know, they didn't know what my wishes would be. And, I, you know, and I remember talking to my son about that and he was like, well, how did you even know that? So there were these things that, um, that were proof that I had kind of been out of my body and traveling around and privy to things in other parts of the hospital that I couldn't have known from my room. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, you know, I don't know, I can't really explain the deep sleep, but I remember welcoming it because I was always really worked up when it came. Your story almost kind of adds something to what I've been thinking about. Because I hear so many people and sometimes people go to this black void. But I thought it's mm -hmm. very interesting that you are creating the black void. Because mm -hmm. I thought before that maybe the black void is just some kind of separation from the body. But you haven't really like yeah. left or went through the tunnel or somewhere. You're just kind of your consciousness. Yeah, kind of like this geographical holding place. Exactly. And I never really thought of it as a place where, you know, the person created that geographical holding place. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've talked to... Uh, a couple people had reached out who had had a near-death experience based on a suicide attempt. And they've all been really clear that um, they came to this place where they still had to work through all of that. Like it wasn't this escape from hopelessness or pain that they thought it would be. You know, they're now just on the spiritual end trying to work through it. And so I thought that was interesting that, that you know, you don't escape it. And it, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people – you know, I had looked and, and was reading up on like reincarnation and all these, because there's like a bunch more that happened. I just condense it. And so um, there, there was this person there and I was, I, 
when you would see people there. So I remember seeing people there and they were dressed completely differently. Like one person looked like they were right out of a, a movie about a tribe in you know, some remote place. And, and then the next person would have like a robe on and the next person, it was all very different. And I remember asking God, I'm like, why are they all dressed so different? And he says, oh, well, they're dressed in what they expected they would wear when they were here. Mm. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting that there's this allowance for, you know, personal idea of what you thought you would be. And, um, and as I would look at each person, I knew them. And I mean, I knew them completely, like almost like I was them. And and so there were like these different things that these different scenes, these things that I saw that were not of this life that I live. And, uh, you know, at first I'm like, well, is there reincarnation? I don't know. And, uh, you know, maybe that would make sense. I, you know, and of course, you know, you can't discuss that with your pastor. But um, and then I started wondering, Brian and I talked about this, my friend that has the support group. And I said, I almost wonder if the connection is so strong over there and, and, the realization so deep that we are all connected. Are you, are you really experiencing past lives? Are you, is God letting you experience someone else's life because their experience is going to provide insight into your own. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like it's you because you're feeling it as though it were you because you're so connected to that person. That's a great and, question. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, I don't, I can't, you know, you can't validate. I get, maybe there are some people who could validate that they'd lived before or whatever. But, you know, I did get this idea that it wasn't just happenstance that I ended up where I ended up and, mm -hmm. you know, that God had actually knit me together and um, that he made me on purpose, that I was, that was like the biggest thing that I wasn't an accident. Um, I wasn't just one of hordes. God, you know, much like we do when we're planning a family, God thought me up, you know, he's like, you know what I'd like? It'd be really cool to have this girl that's, you know, kind of short with dark hair and, um, you know, she's, she wants to be a nurse and, um, you know, she's a single mom and, and she's going to gain from all those. Ex I, I'd like to have a penny, you know, and, and I wonder, you know, how long did he contemplate me before he, before he set out to make me? And, and if that's because the one thing that was so interesting, um, I'm trying to think of what that sensation is when you first are, uh, when you're first in love with somebody, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're all you can think about is them and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. You're just enamored with them. Right. Mm -hmm. I expected to feel that to God, you know, to, to feel like that toward him. I did not expect for him to feel like that toward me. Interesting. And he adored me and he knew me. He knew all of me. He knew all of my faults and my flaws and my secrets and, mm -hmm. And he adored me. I mean, he was just crazy about me. And, you know, I have all kinds of people contact me that are, you know, just in a hard spot in their life and they're angry. And, and I always tell people, I said, you know, there's a lot of platforms you can jump off of. Um, the one that I always say never jump off of, don't jump from fear. If you're in a situation where you're fearful, that is not the time to make a decision. If you're in a situation where you're fearful, you're probably not in the best place to communicate with God or anybody else. You know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm just saying it, it, it's hard because you can feed into that. But anger, I know a lot of people who will not reconcile themselves with their maker because they're angry about real things that have happened and real things that would evoke anger. I'm not minimizing it at all. Um, and I always tell people, I'm like, 
You know, there's a lot of platforms you can jump off of. And I think for you, anger is a pretty fine place to start because you have legitimate complaints. You have legitimately been wronged and legitimately been hurt. And it's perfectly natural for you to feel angry if you think this person, there's this entity that could have fixed it all and stood by and did nothing. Of course, you'd be, you know, you'd be angry about that. Tell him, be angry. Yeah. You know, he's he's big enough. He can take that. And and I believe if you start from anger and instead of just holding it in you <clears throat> and exacting it out on everybody around you, if you direct it towards who you're actually angry at, I think he will give you insight that says, wait a minute, this is how you're perceiving this and what you perceived it to be about. This is what it was really about. Right. And I find people, you know, they're they're a little scared to go to God with anger. And I'm like, no, he's God. You know, he made that emotion. It's that's all part true. of us. Yeah, that's true. So God visited you in your hospital room, right? And you also, yes. I think, said that you even smelled what God smelled like. Can you, yeah. two things, tell us what you smelled and can you describe what God looked like for you? Well, it was just light. I never saw anything other than light. Okay. Um, you know, and people say, well, did you see Jesus? Or um, for me, it was more like, like, you know, I'm talking to you in your mind, body, and spirit, three in one. And, you know, God is kind of the mind. Um, Christ is the physical embodiment, and then the spirit is spirit. And and so that was all together. So I don't think it is that I didn't see this, you know, that I didn't see Jesus. I think it was this all-in-one sort of component. Um, and then, what was the other question? What, what other did part you smell? I don't know. It's like, I can't even describe it. Like, I saw... I, I saw other things there like flowers. I did this thing where I flew through the air and then flew down through the water and came out and wasn't wet. And But everything that's there has all the characteristics here like that you can't see. So, you know, when you look at a blade of grass, you just see a blade of grass and it's green. And, you know, you got to get down. And if you want to know what it feels like, you have to touch it. And if you want to know what it smells like, you have to smell it. Well, there you can just, there's thought creation. So you can just think about a flower and a flower appears. It's super convenient and fast, you know, and and you really feel the delay when you get back here, that everything that goes into making something active happen. But I remember like the flowers each had their own song and their own like vibration and their own um, scent. And and it didn't um, conflict with any of the others. It, it all worked together harmonically and God was very much the same. He had this vibration and energy and it, to me, the vibration part felt kind of like what you feel when you play the G on the piano. That was the, the frequency of it. Um, and it was just this kind of faint, sweet, I would say almost like maybe a little like vanilla sort of, it's hard to describe. It's something like I've never smelled before kind of floral it's kind of vanilla i don't know it's just it was a sort of a i mean if i smelled it again i'd be like oh shoot he's here somewhere you know yeah. <laughs> i could definitely pick it out because i'd never smelled it before but yeah I, you know and when he's like in you and you can feel his resonance like down to your bones if you ever if you've ever been like near an explosion or something you know how you you feel that concussion internally mm-hmm. like fireworks or whatever he's kind of like that that resonance is is all the way through to your bones even though you don't really have bones when you're there i guess but you still feel all that did you feel that when he spoke to you like you felt his words yeah and what was weird was he didn't speak i I mean i say he it was light it didn't speak 
but it knew my thoughts. And as soon as I would have a thought, the answer was there. I didn't have to work to remember it. It was like implanted in me. Um, you know, like I couldn't forget it if I tried. It's like ingrained. And, you know, here there's so much work to remembering things and, and understanding them. And there it was just, you know, I had a question. It, there was the answer. And, and it was so, and it was settled. Mm. And that's so nice because here, you know, we're always second guessing what we should do or what somebody else has done. And, and there you just knew this was, this was how it was and this was right. And things are just so much more simple. You know, here things have gotten to be so ambiguous. Like I, daily life has become difficult, you know? And I'm like, you guys are making this so much harder than it needs to be. Just, you know. When you saw your grandmother, what age did she appear to you in? That's funny. So always it seems like when I am able to sense people from the other side or um, they're always like in the prime of their life. They're in their thirties usually, unless they died younger, you know, and I've had, um, I hate to call it this cause then I'll get a ton of messages, you know, can you contact my dead grandmother? And I'm like, I can't just conjure it. Mm-hmm. Something either comes to me or it doesn't. But like when I see people that are on the other side, it's like watching a movie that I've already seen. It seems very familiar and the people are always in the prime of their life. And it's funny because uh, I had a friend who's, for some reason, I was just talking to her and I suddenly pictured her mom and and I knew she had died and I could see her in this kitchen and she's wearing an apron and the stove's here, the table's back here, the door is over here and she's got rolls or biscuits or something and she's throwing it to people, throwing these rolls. And and when her husband walked past her mom and I, I felt like her husband had died too, um, her mom pinched him. And apparently this was her thing that she did. So that's kind of this confirmation to me that, yeah, that's who I'm pinging on. But when I described her and my friend got the picture, there was actually a picture of what I was seeing. Um, it was it was before she was born. Her, her mother was much younger. Mm-hmm. And and she's like, is this it? I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what I described. There's a little girl called a, the little Cajun saint. I think her name is Charlotte something. It's in Louisiana. And this lady contacted me through a friend. And wanted to know if I could get anything from her parents. And I'm like, I really don't like to do this. Um, But I agreed to talk to her. So I'm talking to her. And I'm like, you know what's really weird? I don't see anything that you're wanting. But I see this little girl. And it looks like she's wearing a wedding dress. She has curly hair close to her head. There's a swing set in the backyard. I think she's at your house. And she's swinging. And she used to hold you. And she died young, like before her teens, I think. And, and I always tell people when this is happening, I'm like, just say yes, no, don't tell me anything because I'm pretty intuitive and I don't want to feel like I've read into your answer. So just yes or no, and you can tell me at the end everything else. And I said, I feel like there's some healing involved with this, this little girl. And she's like, no, no, that has nothing to do with me. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, hit or miss, I don't know. And well, then she messages me and she's like, is this the person? And she's got a picture of this little girl in a white communion dress which of course looks like a wedding dress Mm -hmm. and her name, she's the little Cajun saint. And she died, I think between 11 and 13. I can't remember. Um, But people go to her grave and she's actually, I think been sainted by the Catholic church. People go to her grave and pray for healing. Mm -hmm. And she had known this woman's parents and she had come over to the house and she was holding this woman as a baby because she was having illness, like breathing problems, different things. And she had held her and prayed over her. And that was what I had seen. And it was so weird because it was this thing that she didn't even remember. Mm. You know, she, she had to get the story from family. And so, yeah, that was pretty weird. 
There was a couple of things that you said, and I can't remember the second one. Maybe you can help me. That would almost make great bumper stickers. And the first one was when you were saying, small, kind things are epic about the grocery store. Small acts of kindness are epic. Yeah, that's so great. They're world changing. And there was another one you said, and it happened to do with love. And I said, oh, that would be Oh, loving you heals me. Yeah, I love that. Loving you heals me. Those are like... It so does. Yeah, that's so great. One of the things I thought was interesting is you made some kind of statement that we are separate from God because you, when you saw God, we are separate from God. And I'm not saying that you are right or wrong. I'm just saying that some of the near-death experiencers, they go to a place where they feel like they become one with God and one with everything. But your experience was different. Can well, you I sense that, that too, though. Oh, you yeah, did. I sense that too. When I say we're separate from God, nobody is separate from anything. Mm-hmm. Everything is connected. Um, and even in saying that, He was in my DNA. Mm-hmm. My what I'm saying is who I am. However, I don't even know how to define that. Who I am. I understood that who I am, and and the things that I can do are not the things that God can do. Um, I understood that, that he was all knowing and I'm not, I'm just now knowing because I'm with him. Mm-hmm. So any, um, any all knowing, all powerful, anything like that, that I felt was because I was with him. It wasn't, it, it's not in me to be all knowing, of course. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when I had that, where he went through my brain and, and all of these mysteries were put to rest and that's what it felt like, like everything was settled, um, I wasn't allowed to keep that. Mm. I could only know it for that time because I'm not God. And I think, you know, it's funny because there's, there's, uh, there's Facebook groups for near death experiencers and stuff. And, and a lot of us have backed out of those groups because there is such contempt for anybody using the word God or any, any um, labels that maybe the Christian faith would use. You, you can't say it. It's, and it's funny, it's not offensive to people who've had an experience. It's offensive to people who are there to hear about people who've had experiences. And I'm like, well, uh, you know, your experience of something, when you're telling me about it, is your experience. And and I can't tell you that's not your experience, but that's kind of what it had gotten to. And, you know, and it, it's not like people were proselytizing or anything. They were just sharing what, uh, you know, what they, and, and you're also left to interpret your experience with what you've got in your head. Right. You know, so I, I mean, I've my my interpretation of what I went through has matured quite a bit over the years. Mm. Uh, you know, different puzzle pieces have fallen into place. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, that makes sense now. So maybe in an earlier talk, you know, I had a different understanding of something. But as I've come through things, I'm like, oh, of course, that's what it meant. So, yeah, I, I do think it ebbs and flows and changes. And uh, but it was clear to me that I I had not created the universe. I had not. Uh, set all of this in motion, mm-hmm. nor could I stop any of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that way, I'm not God. Oh, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wearing your science hat and being a nurse, and God told you that He's part of our DNA and He showed you the DNA. Can you give us a more scientific explanation about what part of our DNA you were shown? You know, it's just so interesting. Like as we were traveling through that, I could feel the strands kind of going over me as we went through them, kind of like, you know, somebody just crossing your skin or something. It was really weird. And I could see like 
the proteins that made up my specific body and the things that delineated, you know, um, you know, that I would have this kind of sarcastic sense of humor. It was just all coded in there. And, and there's this, um, there's this area that is referred to as like junk DNA. That's like a scientific thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not that that is the mystery DNA that, that they don't know what it is. And I believe that's where God is, is, is in that junk DNA that we can't explain, you know, and it's funny because I, I know I know people who really, really struggle with with the idea of believing in God. And when I was teaching, I taught a, I taught a pathophysiology class. And um, one day I bought these little medicine cups to class and and I passed them all around and um, and then I poured Mountain Dew in them and I had everybody, uh, you know, drink the Mountain Dew. And then um, I passed other cups around and I had everybody spit into the cup and then they poured it into this bottle. And I'm like, I put the cap back on and I'm like, okay, how long till we'll have Mountain Dew to drink? And they're like, what? No, that's not how it works. I'm like, well, now, wait a minute. All the things that were constituents of the Mountain Dew are in your spit. So if we wait long enough, this will change into Mountain Dew, of course, because that's how all perfect and great Mountain Dews are made. And they're like, no, that's that's crazy. And I'm like, yet that's your explanation for you. The magic that that is inside you is explained by happenstance and natural selection. I don't think so. Um, you know, we have a thing in our bodies called crosstalk, where the gut talks to the brain through the vagal nerve that that runs from your brain stem to the end of your digestive tract. You you have actual things in your body that are that are sending telecommunications up through the wire. That doesn't happen by accident. No good and perfect thing does. You know, I mean, if you've ever written a book or done a drawing or uh, made dinner, uh, you know, you can't just throw all the ingredients in happenstance and eventually it involves into meatloaf. It'd be nice, but it doesn't work that way. And so I think, um, I, I think it for me, it really helped me appreciate this thing that that I think puts all of that to, to rest. Um, you could explain all of this maybe through evolution, but how do you explain beauty? There's no reason for beauty. You know, uh, things could just evolve and and this creature likes this creature just because that's what it is. But there's beauty. This could have all been black and white and very dull looking. and um, But it's not. It's extraordinary. I mean, even at the microscopic level, you look at a snowflake. It's incredible. And I'm like, there is no explanation for beauty except for love. You know, I love you and I want to bless you with beautiful things. You know, so when you look at a tree, it, it, you know, that could have been just gray. But I, I mean, these vibrant colors that are in it and how it flowers in the spring and how it turns orange in the fall, you know, those are shows of love for you. It's all around you. You can't not see it unless you're just trying not to look. Mm-hmm. And even in this time, you know, even when things are so hard, I, I'm encouraging people to step away from those things that are creating anxiety and strife in them personally, because it's trimming years off your life for one thing. Um, and the other thing is you're supposed to focus on what is good and what is kind and what is lovely and what is beautiful, because those things build your spirit and they make you more able to deal with those negative things. You know, you can't be constantly beat down and, and depleted and then be productive. You just can't. So I, I just feel like in that self-care, you know, people are kind of getting into this selfishness instead of getting into this, I'm going to accept the things that are around me that are meant to build me up so that I can go out and not focus on me and help you. 
because that's really what we're all here for. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or chat with you. Are you open to that? And if so, how could they reach out to you? Oh, I, you know, how do you handle that? Like I, so I've got this big COVID thing going and most of my interviews are about that. So I have like, I'm, I have my, my site for that. Like we're setting up the website. I have an email specifically for that and, and I'm inundated there. And so like a lot of times I'll, I'll like go through comments that people leave. I try to, I try not to do a video unless I know I have time to go through and answer questions people will have in your comment feed. Mm -hmm. Cause to me, that feels like you've just left them with something and walked away and they don't know Mm -hmm. what to do with it and they need Mm -hmm. help sometimes. Um, But that gets super tedious, you know, like I've got one video out that's, I think it's got like over a hundred thousand views. I couldn't possibly go through and answer all those. So how do your other people handle that inundation of messages? Um, I think most people will give them, will give out their Facebook, um, you know, like their Facebook name and, you know, you can just private message somebody. I yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing. And I honestly don't talk to many of the guests after I have them on. It's not by choice. Yeah. It's just we just lose touch. Right. Sometimes they'll tell me, you know, or sometimes they'll report back to me. But you could put your email. I don't think anybody's getting like thousands of, yeah. of comments. You see, that's how many I get from, I usually, I take two days a week and I spend mm-hmm. eight hours, both of those days answering messages. Right, right. So, um, but it's not for this. It's for right, COVID. So, right. but yeah, I think Facebook's okay. You know, that it's, I'm listed just under my regular name there and they can message me. It takes me a while to wade through them, but, okay. um, you know, cause I always like for the COVID stuff, I'm like, you know, put some kind of something in that title. So I know it's an emergency because otherwise I just work through them as they come. All right. All right, Penny. Well, before we finish up, can you give us one last positive message? I can. I want to share the message that God gave to me in the hospital room that night. And I had held on to this. He had told me to share it, but it just felt like this like intimate love letter from him to me. So I kept it. And then at some point, I don't recall when it was, he, he kind of poked me on that. And he's like, I gave that to you to share and if for you to keep it to yourself is theft. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not a thief. I'll do it. So that's finally what made me come out with it. But his, what he said was, such folly to think anything escapes my knowing. As when you were with me all at once, all that I allowed you to know, you knew. No words were spoken, nor were they shouted. I whispered them to your spirit. I discreetly filled you with knowing. Knowing flowed into you as effortlessly as taking a breath. Is it not so? The great I am. No truer words have ever been spoken or written. The great I am is in your core. The great I am is the light. Even when I am hidden, still I am. As my energy charged, sending me over each synapse in your brain. Those small fibers knew that I am. They rose and fell to the rhythm I created, to the symphony I composed, I conducted. I consider it a tragic comedy of arrogance when man denies what the smallest innervation knows. Man thinks he acts and moves outside my knowledge. How could it be so? I say I proclaim he does not. His own fibers clutch themselves laughing at the idea. I am the flower, the wind, the rain, the sinew, the marrow, the rock, the author, the maker, the touch that set in motion all that you see, all that you know, and all that you do not see or know. Oh, I can get the page. I knit you. I put breath in you. I'm coded in every cell. Every nanosecond of time falls in step as I will it so. I am in you. I'm in you. I'm all. 
Even when you per- perceive nothing, still I am. As I tell you this here and now, pressing my truth into your breast, your very heart presses it further in. That was it. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. All right, Penny, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too.